Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in northwest San Antonio. Good morning. I'm so glad to be here with you. I want you to remember that when Jesus looks at you, he sees the beauty of your son, of his son in you, and that you are so precious to him, so much so that he gave his life for you, you guys. So thank you for that. Uh, Now let's read uh, John. We're going to be reading, if you stand, for, for the reading of the word of John chapter 19, verse starting in verse 17. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to a place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on each side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many Many of the Jews read this inscription For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, 
and at once they came out, and once there came out blood and water. He who saw it was, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also might believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came in and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen, bound it in linen clothes and spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, this is a day, this is a time we celebrate what you did for us, Father, as you went to the cross. You gave your life for us because you loved us so much. And you said, it is finished. So now we can rest in, what, in the finished work that you've already done for us, Lord. Help us to rest in the power, Father, of, of your death and resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The kids are now free to go to children's class. Dear Lord, God, I pray that you would this morning speak through me, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that I would be able to effectively divide the word of truth, God, that I would have the words as limited is human speech to convey the deep drama and overwhelming passion of the crucifixion of our Lord. God, I pray that you would animate my words with spirit so that the suffering of our Lord would change the hearts of the people in this room. 
Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. As I grow older, I have begun experiencing this sense of chronological regret. And, and I think that it is something that, that all people go through as we grow older. Um, we live long enough to experience the world and to see things that we should have embraced when we were younger. And we all kind of, I think you can all think of something that you wished that you would have gotten into or would have participated in when you had the opportunity. We all can probably think back to when Apple stock was really cheap or a time when maybe gold was below $1,000 an ounce or goodness knows Bitcoin at one point was super cheap. All of these things seemed to not have value at the time and not be worth our time or our effort. I, I can remember at one point in my, in my uh, early adulthood, I was 18 years old, I had, uh, I had just gotten a scholarship to Texas A&M. My dad was incredibly proud of me. And my, I, I don't know if you know this about me, but my dad, um, growing up, my dad loved pawn shops, okay? And so I grew up, to some extent, in some sketchy pawn shops in Houston. And, and that's okay. I met some really interesting people, um, and they loved me and poured into my life, and I learned some life lessons, some of which were not worth learning, but some of them were actually very good. Um, I, uh, I can remember at one point having just gotten into Texas A&M and just gotten a scholarship. My dad took me to a particular pawn shop on Almeda Road. It's closed down now, and it was run by these two guys. Uh, one of the guys was named Bones, and the other guy was named Pablo. I don't think either of those were their actual names. I don't know what their actual names were. But Bones and Pablo were just really excited. And, and, and I can remember this old, grizzled old pawn shop guy said, Man, I'm, I'm so proud of you, boy. I want to give you a gift. I'm just so proud. And he reached up behind the counter of the pawn shop, and he pulls down this suitcase, it's this beautiful suitcase, leather-clad suitcase, and he, and he puts it down and wipes the dust off the top, and he, he opens it up and, and flips it open. And inside is a beautiful browning Satori over and under shotgun. Okay, it's beautiful. Now, at the time, I had no idea what that was. I was like, oh, I thought all shotguns had a pump, but oh, cool. Mr. Terry, that seems really nice. Uh, like, you're, you're going to give that to him? And he said, yeah. I, I started, I like looked at it. I was like, this, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. This seems not, you know, I'm, at this point, I'm still 18. I still think an AK-47 is the coolest thing in the world. That's really what I want. I wonder if I could take this to a gun show and, like, turn it into, like, a, like an M16 or something. That'd be cool. This is kind of lame, actually. And so as I reach out to it, he goes, yeah, I'm going to give this to you. I'm really, really proud of you. 
all you need to do is, is just give me $1,000. I was like, I thought, you, I thought you were giving this to me, Steve. And he was like, his name was Steve Terra. He's like, I thought you were giving this to me. And he said, oh, at $1,000, it is a gift. It'd be cheap at twice the price. Now, the tragedy is, many years later, I actually understood what that was, and I knew that that was a gift. $1,000 for a Browning Satori shotgun would have been insanely cheap. But see, I didn't understand what it was, and I couldn't appreciate the value in the sacrifice that that man was making. I tell you that story this morning because I think that very often when we read the passion of Christ, we don't fully understand what the sacrifice is that Christ made for us. And I want to take a little bit of time today to explore that. This is Palm Sunday. This is the day during the, the year of the church when we would normally be celebrating Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But we're not going to do that this morning. We already discussed this several weeks ago. In fact, as we've gone through the Gospel of John, we have been in uh, the last several days of Christ's life for almost a month or two. And so we have reached a place in our study of John where Christ is about to go to the cross. We've spent several Sundays walking through the different trials that Jesus has gone through. If you come back on Thursday, when we celebrate Monday, Thursday, we will celebrate the entirety of Christ's passion. I would encourage you, if you've never participated in that with us before, it is an incredibly deep, moving, and meaningful celebration. It's going to be at 6.30 on Thursday. We're not going to be having Wednesday night activities this week, and I would encourage you to come out to that, because it is beautiful. But this morning, we're going to discuss kind of the culmination of all of those trials and all of that passion. See, last week we learned how Pilate tried over and over again to try to wash his hands of Christ, to try to get Christ to go away, to try to get the Jews to be okay with, uh, with just beating Christ almost to death. We, we learned about these different trials that Jesus went through, and all of Pilate's efforts have come to nothing. There's no way for him to escape the inexorable path that Christ is taking to the cross. And so our passage this morning begins with these very pregnant words. In verse 17 we read, So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Now John, as he reports this, spends one sentence on something that is both gruesome and prolonged. It's something that his readers would have known intimately about. See, crucifixion, crucifixion was a widespread practice in the Roman Empire. 
Most scholars believe that crucifixion began with the Persians, or the Babylonians even, who devised it as a way to publicly execute people by impaling them on a stake. But the Romans, the Romans never invented anything. But what they would do is they would perfect things. And using all of their genius, they found a way to take this gruesome practice and make it even worse. See, when a person was crucified, what would happen? First thing that they would do is they would beat them severely. We talked about this last week, the flogging that Jesus received. A beating so severe that many people would die simply from the beating. The skin would have been methodically flayed from Jesus' back to the bones showed until the entrails were visible and blood coursed down. At this point, Jesus would have been weak and going into shock. So at this point, the Romans took a 100-pound piece of lumber, the cross piece of the cross that he would be crucified on, and they put it on his tortured back. And he would be forced to bear this to the site of execution. Miles of public humiliation, stripped naked and beaten through the streets. We call this the Via Della Rosa. Now, the wood that made up the cross was a kind of a rough-hewn piece, but in Palestine at the time, there weren't a lot of trees, and so this would have been reused. And so as Jesus is carrying this cross member through the streets, his blood would have mixed with the crusted blood of those who had been killed before him. Jesus is in shock. And even though he is young and in good health, he was so physically devastated from a sleepless night and miles of walking and a severe beating that he collapsed under the weight of this. And we know from the other Gospels that the Romans weren't even able to make him carry this thing all the way to the crucifixion site. In fact, a, a man named Simon of Cyrene had to come in and had to carry the cross for Jesus. When they got to Golgotha, the place of the skull, which was basically Jerusalem's garbage dump. Jesus would have been forced down onto the cross member, and he would have had five to seven inch nails driven through one of the most sensitive nerve junctures in the entire body, right here on your wrist. They would have then probably also tied him to the cross, because if you just suspend somebody by nails, it, it rips out through your body. Jesus would have been tied to this bar and then the bar would have been hoisted up onto the, the pole. And as the, as the pole slipped down into a hole, he would have been jolted against those. And then the Romans would have taken his feet and nailed them to a, a little seat that they had on the, on the upright. Now, this wasn't an act of mercy. The seat was actually there to prolong the misery of crucifixion because see, what kills people in crucifixion is asphyxiation. 
A person cannot breathe when their body weight is pulled down below a certain place. And so the cruelty, the cruel genius of crucifixion is that a person is placed in a dilemma. If you hang from your hands, you endure excruciating pain and you can't breathe. And the only way you can take a breath is by pushing up against your feet that have been nailed to the upright. And you take a breath, and when that pain becomes too intense and your core muscles give out, you slump down again. And this would happen over and over and over again. Every breath was an excruciating torture. And and in one last spiteful act, Pilate hangs a placard on the cross that says, the king of the Jews. And we read that the king of the Jews was declared in all of the local languages. It was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. This was Pilate's last dig at the Jews, the people that had forced him to do something he didn't want to do. And so as he has declared Jesus as the king of the Jews over and over and over again, now this man's crime is clearly described. And the Jews come to Pilate and say, hey, you know, it'd be great if you maybe didn't say the king of the Jews, but said, hey, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Because... After all, the disgusting, wrong thing that's happening this morning is a typo. Pilate looks at them with disgust and says, I've written what I've written. As if to say, now leave me alone. Once again, in his sovereignty... God has arranged all things so that even as Jesus dies like a criminal, his murderers cannot help but declare his kingship. Every single person involved as they beat this man to death is declaring his kingship. As Jesus hangs on the cross struggling for breath, a macabre drama plays out beneath him. We read in verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Soldiers everywhere are the same. We've said this over and over again. These four men that have been tasked with doing this dirty job, who have beaten this man through the streets and crucified him, now are being tasked to wait for this man to die. This was brutal work. Crucifixion is not a clean way to die. As the the men upon these crosses, crosses struggled to breathe and endured trauma after trauma, and as they went into shock, their bowels would release... There is blood and filth everywhere. And so these guys do what all soldiers do when they're bored and have a bad job. 
They gamble. Now, it's kind of the perquisites of the executioner to divide up the clothes of the accused. This is because oftentimes those clothes could be sold back to the family in, in one last kind of act of cruelty. And so they, they've taken Jesus' clothes. He probably had sandals and a belt and, and kind of this loincloth undergarment that he would wear. And so they, they divided these things up probably four pieces of clothing amongst all of the guards that were there. And what was left was a tunic, which is kind of this overshirt that a Middle Eastern man would wear. And, and rather than ripping this thing into four pieces, they decided it would be worth more whole. And what better way to pass the time than to play dice for it? And so as Jesus slowly asphyxiates to death on the cross, these men are standing below him, gambling over his clothing. And as if to make this sight even worse, right, as they're gambling over his clothing, his mother and his mother's three other friends, who probably made the clothes that he's wearing, are watching all of this happen. I, I, I cannot... Imagine how horrible it must have been to watch your child slowly tortured to death. And yet Mary, Mary is there. When everyone else abandons Christ, the people that are left are not Peter, or Simon the Zealot, or Thomas the tax collector. These men have all run away. The people that are left to do the dirty work are the people that so often do the dirty work, the women. During our Monday Thursday service, one of the things that we do is we go through this kind of ritual of, of stripping our communion table and stripping our cross, and the, the people that do that are the women of this church. And that's a way that they act out this last death watch of the women. As Jesus looks down on them, how Mary must have thought back to that moment so long ago when Simeon, the prophet, held her baby and said, and prophesied over him and said, This child will be for the rising and the falling of many in Israel. And then he looked her in the eye and told her that a sword would pierce her own heart. She didn't know what that meant then, but now she does. But, but even in this, right, even in the midst of this horrible moment, Jesus is still fulfilling his father's plan. He is still working all things together. And so as he gasps out his breaths, he gives his mother to his beloved disciple. We read that when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. 
And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. Even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of of torture, he cares about the people that have followed him. Brothers and sisters, sometimes as we walk through the Christian life and things aren't great, we endure tragedy or struggle. Somebody dies. Somebody, something bad happens to us. It, it can be easy to forget that Christ loves us. That, that he cares for us. That he takes care of us. Even now, as he's slowly asphyxiating to death, he's caring for the people that follow him. Because that's his character. When we read scripture, we see the character of Christ. And his character doesn't change. See, his character is to care for those who follow him, but his character is also primarily and mostly to work out the plan that God has established from before the beginning of time. And so we read that after he did this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, in order to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. See, all of this, all of this has been to fulfill scriptures that were written almost a thousand years before. Think about them dividing up his clothing. Almost a thousand years before, David wrote this of the Messiah. Dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and glout over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This isn't a surprise. This isn't something that's happening outside of God's plan. Even Jesus drinking vinegar here at the end, this cheap wine that was the equivalent of Mad Dog 2020 for the soldiers, some malt liquor that they give him to drink. Right, David declares this too. He says, reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, I found none. But they gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So even as the tragedy of the crucifixion plays out, John wants his readers to see that God is still in control. That nothing, not even this, most brutal of all things, is outside of the plan of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, that we would know that. When things turn sideways on us. Brothers and sisters, we live in chaotic times right now. And many of you have come to me and expressed the same thing. What are we going to do? Well, everything's going wrong. How are we going to cope? It's a sentiment that I have also felt. But here's the deal, guys. No matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets, and we know from Scripture that it will get much worse before it gets better. 
God is still in control. He's still in control. No matter who sits on the Supreme Court, no matter who is the President of the United States, no matter what Vladimir Putin does, or Xi Jinping does, or Joe Biden does, none of those things ultimately matter. The only thing that matters is Christ. Well, now it is the final moments of his passion and the stage has been set and all is ready for the final act. And as Christ strains against the nails and he begins to gasp and he, he gasps out these final words and it's really interesting as we read the Gospels we see there's three different things that, that he says kind of as he comes close to the end. We read in, in the Gospel of Luke that as the soldiers are dicing for his clothing and, and the, as the Pharisees and the Sadducees are spitting at him and, and mocking him to his face, that he looks down and he gasps out, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus forgives his executioners even as they torture him to death. And then a little bit later on, right before he asks for something to drink, he cries out in anguish, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, this is the moment in the passion when the sin of mankind is laid on him. See, there, there is something that is far worse than crucifixion that is happening to Christ right now. Yes, he's being tortured slowly to death, but something far worse is happening. See, while he is being crucified to death, the sin of all mankind is being laid on him. He is carrying Every horrible, selfish, self-centered, closed-minded, bigoted thing that you or I have ever done. And Jesus, who is the incarnate Son of God, who has had perfect fellowship with the Father before the beginning of time, loses his relationship with his father. His father who cannot look on sin. His father who cannot tolerate that which deviates from the standard, looks down at his perfect sin, sees, looks at his perfect son, sees our filthy sins and turns his face away. Brothers and sisters, that, that is the real torment. That is the real torture of Calvary. And as all of these things happen to him, and as his body slowly shuts down, we read that Jesus cried out one last word, and it is the word tetelestai. And it means very simply, it is finished. It is a cry of completion that echoes through time. It is finished. The crucifixion is finished. 
His torture is finished. His separation is finished. But more importantly, the division between humanity and God is finished. That curse that has been laid on us from the time of Adam and Eve is finished. That separation between God and man that required the sacrificial system and the Mosaic law and the temple and the veil and all of it, it's all finished. It's all done. That sin that, that we had carried for ourselves has now been paid for in full. And all of the sin of all mankind has been cast as far as the east is from the west. See, Jesus' work was done once and for all, and he took his sins on himself and cried out that it was done. Growing up, I used to listen to, I was a weird kid growing up, I'm just, I'm just telling you that. I used to love Dave Ramsey. I don't know if anybody here ever has watched Dave Ramsey or listened to Dave Ramsey, but they do this thing on the show. His big thing is, is paying off debt and being debt-free, and he has this thing that he does on his show where somebody who's been kind of walking through this program, somebody who's been working incredibly hard and living on ramen noodles and eating rice and beans gets to a place where they pay off their last credit card, right, where they pay off their house payment, where they're now well and truly debt-free, and they do this scream, it's this visceral, animalistic scream as they release all of the pent-up frustration that they've had. That's what happens at Calvary. Now events begin to speed up. It's 3 p.m. and the religious leaders are done torturing this poor man to death. They want to go home. It's getting close to dinner time. I want to go home to mama. Tomorrow's Passover. We want to get over it. We're told that it's the day of preparation, and so they need to get home and get things done. And so they go to the Roman soldier. They say, hey, can you guys, can we, like, hurry this up a little bit? Like, I mean, watching this guy slowly die has been great and all, but can we just maybe, like, close this out? Now, normally, the Romans would let you slowly asphyxiate to death for days up on a cross. It could take people days to die up there. As you slowly got more and more tired until finally you just stopped breathing. But you could speed it up. What they would do is they'd take a great big wooden mallet and they'd come over and they'd break your legs. Well, you can't hold yourself up anymore. And between hemorrhaging, severe shock, and not being able to breathe, you die probably 10, 15 minutes. Relatively merciful. That's what we're looking at right now. So they go to the other two guys that are crucified on either side of them, and they break their legs, and they go over to Jesus, but Jesus is done. He's not breathing anymore. There's no point in breaking this man's legs. Instead, one of the soldiers goes over, grabs one of his spears, and sticks it up in him. Now, normally, if you stick a dead body like this, you're going to get a little trickle of blood, maybe. If he's alive, you're going to get spurting arterial blood. You'll be like, oh, no, he's alive. Cool, let's stick him again a couple times. 
But something weird happens with Jesus. See, when they stick him in the side, what comes out is this mixture of blood and water. And here's what, here's what scholars and some doctors have said about this. As Jesus had gone through all of the trauma that he had gone through, his body had begun accumulating fluid in his pericardial sac. Okay, so he had like fluid that was accumulating in his chest cavity. What ultimately kills Jesus, unlike other people, is not asphyxiation. He died of probably a heart attack or congestive heart failure. And so when they stick him in the side, all that fluid that had been keeping his heart from beating gushes out onto the ground. Jesus literally died of a broken heart. His heart was broken for you. His heart was broken for me. And finally, Jesus' body is, is tended to by two men who had been... They'd been guys that had liked Jesus and followed Jesus but wouldn't really admit to it. The first guy is a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. He is a member of the Sanhedrin. So he's been there throughout the entire trial, trying to keep this from happening without actually outing himself as a supporter of Jesus because he knows that if people think that he follows Jesus, he's going to lose everything. But now at the end, this man who has been kind of a coward and has been kind of hiding, he steps out from the shadows and he does something very public. He goes to Pilate and he says, can I have the body? Can I please take the body down off this cross? And can I please go tend to it and bury it in dignity? And Pilate does something kind of uncharacteristic. Normally in, in the Roman world, if you're crucified, they're going to leave you up there till the vultures eat you. And he tells Joseph of Arimathea, yeah, you can. You can take him down. And so Joseph of Arimathea takes the body down, and another man, a man that we met early on in our study of John, you guys remember Nicodemus? The teacher who came to Jesus in the dark of night and talked to him about being born again, but wouldn't, wouldn't commit to following him and, and wouldn't, wouldn't go out publicly. Now Nicodemus, in the midst of this man's death, he, he does something strange. He goes to his house and He's like, how do I honor this man who I, who I couldn't follow in life? And he, he gathers up, we're told, 100 pounds of embalming spice. Now, this is a ridiculous amount of embalming spice. The, the Jews did not embalm people the way that the Egyptians did, where they would just, like, take all their organs out, but they would use some spices to keep the body from rotting too quickly as they prepared it. Now, what Nicodemus does is he goes home and he doesn't bring like, like a little bit like you would use if your brother had died or your mom had died. He went and got the entire family stock of embalming spices, like everything that they had stored up kind of in advance for everybody else. He grabs all of it and drags it down to where they're preparing Jesus' body. We're told a hundred pounds of embalming spice is what you would use to embalm a king. And so they take Jesus' body and they lay him in a freshly opened tomb in a garden nearby and they seal the door. See, Jesus died like a criminal, 
but he was buried like a king. And here's where we begin to see this great reversal in Scripture happen. Everything up to this point has been going down and down and down. Everybody has abandoned him. He's been rejected. He's been tortured and killed. And now, in his death, his followers begin to find within themselves in the power of the Holy Spirit the ability to stand up and be counted. And the entire rest of the book of John is going to be about redemption. As everybody who has failed Jesus comes back and stands up. We're going to see almost most movingly of all, Peter, as he comes back. See, John wants his readers to understand that in death, Jesus has fully accomplished his earthly mission to redeem all of mankind. When Christ cried out that it was finished, he has ended an epoch of history that began with the failure of Adam and Eve. For millennia, mankind has lived as enemies of the God that created them, whose image they bore. And now, now that's ended. Christ died to restore them and us by paying for our sins. This was the supreme act of God's grace towards us. It's something that we didn't deserve it and we couldn't earn. But it was something that Christ did for us for free. But the important thing for us to remember as we read through this, that even though that grace was free, it wasn't cheap. See, we can have a relationship with God. We can enter into his presence confident of being accepted because he took our sin and our cross and he paid for them all. But we can't ever fall into the trap of taking that sacrifice that Jesus made for us for granted. Because it took everything he had. It, it cost something beautiful and precious and perfect being destroyed. See, we're free. But we must constantly remind ourselves that our freedom came at a terrible cost. We are saved by grace. And while that grace is free, it is not cheap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, coined that phrase, cheap grace, and talked about how destructive the concept of cheap grace was. How cheap grace in Christian religion robbed everything of meaning. It's important for us to understand that, that this free grace is free, but it's not for everyone. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. See, when Christ breathed his last, he cried out that it was finished, and he paid the price for our sins. But this is only true for those who believe. Not for everyone. Everybody doesn't get saved. Only those people who believe, who consciously accept him. Only those who accept this free gift. This is critical, guys, because nobody can accept Jesus for somebody else. 
We can't legislate Christianity. Like if we do enough Christian things, then everybody will be saved. We can't force our children to accept him as much as I would love that. And I know every parent here desperately, desperately wants your children to accept Jesus. But you can't accept him for him. It's one of the reasons we don't baptize babies. Moms, as much as you want your children to be saved, it's ultimately up to them to accept or reject Jesus. Let's put it this way. God has lots of children, but he has no grandchildren. See, grace is free, but it's not cheap, and we've got to remember that the great cost at which we were saved, costly grace demands repentance. It's not enough to just say, oh, Lord, I believe in you. Cool. Back to the strip club. That's not how it works. We're forgiven, but for our, our forgiveness comes with the demand of repentance. We're not forgiven simply by saying some words once a long time ago. The psalmist tells us that what God wants is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's why David is a man after God's own heart, even though he does terrible things all the time. Like murdering your best friend so you can sleep with his wife kind of bad stuff. If we've accepted Christ as our Lord, then we need to live like he is our Lord. It means that we, who, that we have to live like he, like he has told us to live. That means that we need to accept what he tells us about ourselves, that we are who he says we are, not who we want to be or who our society tells us that we are. Almost as importantly, costly grace demands a committed life. Listen to me, you were bought at a price. And you have not been saved so that you can waste your life seeking your own pleasure. Your own purpose, your own meaning. And I just want to take a moment here, guys. So many of us, we take this gift that God's given us, this eternal life that he's given to us, and we waste it chasing things that don't matter. Your job, your house, your car. The approval of people that don't matter. We take this gift that God's given us and we just, we throw it away. We were purchased, each of you was purchased at an unimaginable cost. So that you could be conformed to the image of the one that bought you. That is the meaning and the purpose of your life. We live in a time and in an age when everybody's looking for meaning. Oh, I want my life to matter. Well, let me, let me tell you something. If you have been saved, your life does matter. But it matters because God has a plan for you. You have been saved by grace so that you can become his disciples. And this demands discipleship. It means committing to growing in godliness. It means joining a community of believers and submitting to mutual support and accountability. I, I'm, I'm going to step on some of your toes here. 
and I'm, I'm sorry because we're, we're going over, we're going long, but I got my watch and you know that doesn't mean anything. Christ did not save you so that you could worship God by yourself on the golf course on Sunday morning. Okay? He didn't save you so that you could go worship God by walking through the woods on Sunday morning. Because let's face it, you're not on the golf course on Sunday morning or walking in the woods on Sunday morning. You're asleep on Sunday morning. Okay? God saved you so that your life could be built up in the community of believers. And community is hard. Community means submitting to people who sort of look like Jesus and sort of don't look like Jesus. It's a group of people that are coming together, helping each other become like Jesus. So I want to put this to you this morning. Cheap grace prevents us from making the decisions that we need to make to live like Jesus. If you really and truly value what he did, then you will live like that matters. You will spend your time reading his word and spending time with him in prayer. And you will spend time with his people in his church. Now, now hear me. It doesn't have to be this one. Okay? It doesn't. This church is not for everybody. We are an acquired taste. <laughs> like kimchi or pickled herring. But you need to find some place. And you need to put down your roots and you need to grow. You need to become the people that God has saved you to become. It means committing to evangelism and service as a true and a faithful witness. Brothers and sisters, each of us has been bought at a price and that price was dear beyond comprehension. And that means that you are valuable beyond belief to God. Listen to me. Some of you people in here today feel like you are worthless. Like you have nothing to bring to the party. That you have screwed your entire life up. But I'm going to tell you right now, your life is new today. You have the whole rest of your life. Whether it's an hour or 20 or 40 or 30 60 years to live out the life that he's given you. And it starts fresh right now. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. If you have never made a commitment to follow Christ, I want to invite you to come forward and we'll pray for you. If you're embarrassed, like I don't want to walk up front, everybody's going to look at me, that's cool, come and talk to me. We'll talk afterwards. You don't have to come up here to accept Jesus. I don't care where you accept Jesus, just so long as you do accept Jesus. Maybe you've accepted Jesus, but you don't have a community that you're a part of. I want to encourage you to come forward this morning so we can pray for you and talk to you about what that looks like. It may be here or maybe someplace else, but it needs to be somewhere. Maybe you are a part of this church or you're a part of another church, but you're struggling with who you are in Christ and your identity. You've been making bad decisions. You've been screwing stuff up. I want you to come forward so we can pray for you so that you will feel the peace that Christ died on the cross to give you. I don't care what it is. During this time of response, I want you to listen to the voice of God in your life. And I want you to do what he tells you to do. Y'all pray with me now. Dear Lord, 
God, I thank you for these men and women in this room. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.